Hello, hello. Welcome to the Caught Red Podcast. We are your host. I am Megan Light. And I'm Jesse Light. And we are here to talk a little bit about some true crime, occasional whore, and then obviously our doggos. Duh. Time for a little recap. Last week was my turn. And I forgot to mention my sources this time around, but I am working on typing them all up from the episodes and then eventually I'll get them on our, our site as well. So if y'all are ever curious about an article or want to check something out, you can do that. I told the story of John Markle. He was a family annihilator just like Ronald Gene Simmons was. And this was so crazy to me and I didn't even realize it until after the fact, but the Markle incident happened about four or five weeks prior to the murders that Simmons committed and the Markles were in Little Rock Simmons and the others who unfortunately became his victims they were in Russellville and Dover and uh, for those not in Arkansas those are about like a an hour 15 hour and a half ish apart from each other and I just thought that was kind of crazy like what are the odds in the same year Two families suffer, and and they're so close together and like distance. And he probably saw it on in the newspaper and was like, "Huh, well, maybe I should try that." Let me give that a whirl. Crazy. We also had our bonus episode last week. We did Final Girls. I liked it. That was it, fun. It was different. I liked it a lot. I liked my little eclectic group of gals. I liked your group too. You had like more hardcore badass. And then we already got what we're planned to draft next week, too. Yes. I wouldn't mess with either of the groups. And then next week will be a fun one also. I'm looking for. I already started my list, too. So I'm very excited about that one. And, oh, our uh, a bracket. Halloween. OG. Yes. Overall. Reigning I'm, supreme. I'm not surprised. Yeah, no. It's a great classic. You can't beat it. Jesse mentioned in the bonus episode that I watched some more true crime related stuff. So we didn't mention it like the movies that we had watched. And for those out there, I saw it on Hulu. I don't know if it's streaming anywhere else or if it's just like a Hulu show, but it's called Wild Case. And I binged season one, which I mean, it was only four episodes, but it, I mean, still, I watched them back to back to back to back. And I think you were watching like UFC fights or something. Yeah, I think, I think so. so. I think it was on a Saturday, but it's really good. Uh, season one is the mysterious death of Tony Henthorne, and it's called Wild Case because the show falls cases that are in national parks. Like season one is in the Rocky Mountains. Season two is in Yosemite. And so far, I've only seen two of episodes so far, and it looks like it's uh, Henry Lee Lucas, who is a serial killer. One of those guys with three names. Yes. Three first names. Then you know, he know he's a bad boy. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. Also, this week, we started the Terrifier until the internet at our house said, you know what, y'all are done, which happens very frequently where we live. I'm used to it by now. Yeah. I like to compare internet to Ripley. Like, it starts off so well and chipper, and then the day goes on, and it gets more ornery, and I'm pretty sure it develops an attitude like she does. Megan was at work the other day, and I was beginning my research for this case, until the internet went down, and I was like, well, I guess it's not going to let me today. I'll try again later. <laughs> I made Jesse watch Young Frankenstein. Yeah. So good. It's so funny. I love satires. I love slapstick humor, and it's all about, like, shits and giggles, those movies by Mel Brooks. I feel like its humor was ahead of its time, too. Oh, for sure. And since we had watched that one, I went ahead and just put on Blazing Saddles, which is like one of my top movies of all time. Judge me as you she wish. Was quoting the whole damn thing. I almost know it, but not like I know like Die Hard or The Replacements, but I'm getting there. We watched Eden Lake as well. We were on it. We were on it this past week. Beth from Yellowstone. She was a badass in this one, too. And honestly, she could have been one of the final girls. <laughs> I mean, kind of. We don't know if she's dead or not. I'm going based off that scream at the end that <laughs> right. she's she's kicked the bucket, sir. But I liked it. It was really brutal. And it's one of those movies, like we said, like uh, bad guys win, maybe. Yeah. Good, the good does not always prevail. come out. Yeah. It was good, though. It was really bloody. So, of course, thumbs up for me on that one. 
I read The Butcher and the Wren, and it took me no time to finish it for anybody looking out there for a good book recommendation. It's written by one of the co-hosts of the Morbid podcast, and I hope I don't butcher her name, Elena Erhart or Urquhart. I don't know. One of those two. It's obviously not an American name, but it was awesome. And if you haven't read it or read it, go do it. And if you don't know about her, like herself, she's a very cool lady. I was reading the back cover to Jesse and she's an autopsy technician. She has degrees in criminal justice, psychology, and biology. So now I have like a new goal in life to follow in her footsteps. <laughs> she knows her shit then. She does. And I was just thinking like, cause Jesse's a, he's a very supportive man. And he loves me, encourages me. And if I was like, hey, I want to go do this and be like this girl, he'd be like, okay, go ahead. Pitter-patter, what you waiting on? Pitter-patter, get at her. You ready? Yeah, Because I think I think I need to cut off because Jesse's got a serial killer for us this week, which is different from him, for him. And uh, it's a doozy. Buckle up, folks. (laughs) Hold on to your butts. (laughs) The ride is starting. So my sources today... And we're recording this on Halloween. It's FBI.gov, Wikipedia, DPS.texas.gov, NewYorkTimes.com, NPR.org, WinkNews.com, PracticalPie.com, and ThisInterestsMe.com. Does it? Does it interest oh, it, you? it did. <laughs> that was like the psychological stuff that you sent me, actually. Oh, Okay. As you probably know by now, I'm not obsessed with true crime, quite like Megan. I've got a lot of catching up to do, but I have heard of serial killers like Bundy, Dahmer, and Gacy, but who the heck is Samuel Little? I've never heard of that name, okay? And it turns out that his kill count is higher than all three of theirs combined. So he says. So he says, yeah. He's confessed to 93 murders. I feel like you might be tooting your own horn at Maybe, maybe. And who's to say, though, that maybe there's more than that. But how in the world did he get away with all these, and how did he fly under the radar like he did? Samuel Little's killing spree spanned three decades between 1970 and 2005 in over 19 states. Wow. And when I was looking up this case... I texted Megan. I was like, have you heard of Samuel Little? And she was like, yes. Well, I mean. SK, serial killer. SK. (laughs) I've heard of him from another podcast, and I didn't really look too much into him because, I mean, there's so many out there. So this will be a bit of a refresher. So this is our first serial serial killer case. Megan talked about Ronald Gene Simmons, but technically he was not a serial killer. No. Because his murders were not over an extended period of time. A serial killer is a term given to someone who has killed at least three or four people over an extended period of time. The stories of killers who have killed three or four people are just horrifying. There are a few serial killers who have killed 20, 30, or 50 victims, and that's even more horrifying, but... A serial killer who's claimed to have taken the lives of 93 women is just indescribable. And that's who we are dealing with today. I can't imagine. Insane. Over over three decades like that? So there are, th- there are four types of serial killers. You've got visionary, mission-oriented, hedonistic, and power-slash-control serial killers. And these are based on their motivations for carrying out their crimes. A hedonistic, for example, might kill for his own sexual gratification. A visionary killer could murder people because he believes that God is telling him to do so. Our dogs are fighting under my chair. Yeah, it always happens when I'm doing the case, too. Taco's trying to clean Derby's face. Anyways, these motivations can sometimes overlap... Human beings, they're complex creatures, so you can't always just place a person in one of these categories alone. They can be in multiple. Mm-hmm. And I won't go too in-depth on these, but I feel like a little knowledge of this subject will be important. 
in at least trying to understand what's going on in Samuel Little's head. We're not really going to want to. Yeah, we're never going to know exactly what's going on in that head. But so I said, visionary killer is someone who kills because they believe that a person or entity is commanding them to do so. They're usually psychotic and disorganized. They pick random targets and they lack planning and they put little to no effort into covering up their crimes. An example would be Herbert Mullen. Have you heard of him? No. I haven't, no. So he killed 13 people as a blood sacrifice, thinking that a massive earthquake would strike California if nature didn't receive this sacrifice. What? Yeah. So we might have to look into him He's later. He's crazy. Right? A mission-oriented serial killer is someone who kills in order to rid society of a specific group of people. They are not psychotic and aren't out of touch with reality. Like Hitler? I guess, yeah, you could say that. Trying yeah. to take out a... They're, yeah, you could say that. They're organized. They plan their crimes. They tend to stick to their own geographical region. They kill quickly and efficiently and typically avoid close contact kills, so usually with a gun. Hmm. Uh, a good example of this would be Dexter. From the show Dexter. So oh, okay. He kills other murderers. Yeah. Who managed to escape the justice system, so he rids society of these bad guys. The power slash control serial killer seeks to gain control of his victims, obviously. Has feelings of inadequacy and is petrified of rejection. Bless you. They are calm, meticulous, and patient. And they may keep souvenirs of their victims. Ooh. So some classic examples of this type include Gary Ridgway, John Wayne Gacy, and Dennis Rader. They just enjoy the process of murder. Yeah, those are some woof. Really messed up individuals. Yes. Holy cow. Then the hedonistic serial killer kills for pleasure. They can be driven by lust, thrill, or comfort. A lust killer is a serial killer who rapes, mutilates, and kills for his own sexual gratification. So they fantasize about committing crimes for years and years before they pick up the courage to actually commit their first murder. Wow. It'll just take over their thoughts, and once they finally do commit their first murder, it just completely takes over their life. And they'll—this is kind of like criminal minds. I mean, they talk about Mm -hmm. this a lot. Literally what I was thinking about. Yeah. So he might require more stimulation in order to relive the highs of those first couple kills. And as a result, the time between each murder may continue to get shorter and shorter as he struggles to control the impulses. And these serial killers use weapons that put them in close contact. Okay. Strangulation or... By knife or by strangulation with their hands. That makes sense. They want to be right there in Mm -hmm. the moment, right up next to it. Look them in the eyes kind of thing. And it doesn't necessarily have to involve sex either. It doesn't have to be sexual gratification by sex, but the killer may get that gratification just from the kill alone. And I believe that Samuel Little falls into this category. Okay. I think as, as you learn about him, just think about why he would be considered a lust killer And I also think he has some of the aspects of the power and control serial killer as well. Okay. Well, let's go. Let's go. Let's do it. Well, Samuel Little was born on June 7th, 1940 in Reynolds, Georgia, by the name of Samuel McDowell. That's a name he often uses as an alias. His mother, Bessie Mae Little, according to Samuel, was a 16-year-old prostitute on the streets of Georgia She got pregnant by one of her clients, Paul McDowell. And soon after his birth, Samuel's family moved to Lorraine, Ohio, and was mainly brought up by his grandmother. Okay. He attended Hawthorne Junior High School, and right off the bat, he was a troubled kid and had problems with discipline. And now these are his own words right here. So he said he began having sexual fantasies in kindergarten, when his teacher would touch her neck. What? Yeah. In kindergarten? Uh, That's hard to believe. 
<laughs> Hard. <laughs> You'll hear later that he had a thing for Nicks, and as a teenager, he would collect cutouts from true crime magazines where the women were choked out or being choked. So that's really weird. And it's normal for, for teenage boys to have nudie mags under their bed or in their closet, but, but not true a bunch crime of like neck, ma- neck cutouts and stuff. Well, yeah, what? <laughs> First of all, I didn't even know that true crime mags were a thing, so I learned something <laughs> new every day, I guess. Can you imagine that disappointment when you're like, oh, he's got mad. Oh, those are not what I expected. I think it said he had some on his wall, too. Oh, God. Yeah. Why not? Well, by the time he was 16, he already made his first stint in juvie after being convicted of breaking and entering into a property in Omaha, Nebraska. And over the course of his youth and early adulthood, he would be arrested a number of times for driving under the influence Fraud, shoplifting, solicitation, armed robbery, aggravated assault, and rape. Okay, so what has he not done? Exactly. It just seems like he was the type of person right away that you just think they should put in jail and just throw away the key, right? Right. Like, he's getting out, and then it goes right back in. Just keep him. So many run-ins with the law, and as soon as he gets out, he returns to his bad ways, gets caught again. Back and forth, back and forth. Insert eye roll here. Yes. He would basically live a nomadic lifestyle. He'd travel the country, moving from place to place, and he would survive off shoplifting, stealing, and then buying and selling drugs and alcohol. He never really stayed in one place for very long. He never had a fixed address, no registered car, no credit card. It just makes me think of all those cars out there with the the license, the... Uh, oh, the paper temp- tags? Yeah, the temporary license plates that are five or six months expired. Yeah, I was, be- we- I was behind... Uh, well, it's not that bad, but it was like September 21st when I was driving to go pick up Mowgli today. Yeah, I mean, I've seen some from 2020, I think. Yeah, at least this was this year. I don't know how, how they made it that far, but... Anyways, he would go from California to New Jersey in just a couple days sometimes. Wow. And he had been arrested in eight different states. And just sa- keep him. What are you yeah. doing? Well, they didn't want to. They just wanted him to get the heck out of there. And he claimed that during his time in prison, he became a pretty good boxer and referred to himself as a prize fighter. He said he could have made a career of it, but... You know, that obviously never happened. I think the only use he made of that was stunning his victims with a punch to the face when they got in the car with him. Oof. Yeah. By 1975, so he was 35, the number grew to 26 arrests in 11 different states. Just nothing but trouble. When he did have these run-ins with the law, it seemed like they just wanted him out of town, so a lot of the time... He would just receive minimal punishments. So naturally, a criminal that pretty much gets away with a crime is going to keep committing crimes. Duh. And they'll gradually become more significant crimes as he goes along. In 1982, he was arrested in Mississippi and charged with the murder of 22-year-old Melinda Rose LaPree. Grand jury failed to indict him for her murder. But while under investigation, Little was extradited to Florida and was put on trial for the murder of 26-year-old Patricia Ann Mount. Little was identified in court by the prosecution's witnesses as a person who spent time with Mount on the night before her disappearance. Unfortunately, due to mistrust of witness testimonies, Little was acquitted in January 1984 for that murder also. Once again, keeps getting away with it. Lucky. Yeah. Police are doing a great job arresting the guy, but the justice system is like, they're failing on their end big time. You wish you could just like look at the paper with all the arrests that's been made and just be like, well, evidence or not, we should just, we'll just keep him. Yeah. How many chances is this guy going to get? Well, he's past cat lives, right? True. He made his way to California after he was released and stayed in the San Diego area. 
in October of 1984, arrested again. This time for the kidnapping, beating, and strangling of 22-year-old Lori Barros. She survived this attack somehow, some way. Lori Barros called 911 from her sister's house. She told the police that a man that she didn't know beat her up, raped her, and strangled her and left her dead on the side of the road. Oh, my God. She was able to provide details of the assailant and his vehicle. She described the man as a 6'1", 230-pound African-American with a pinky ring with two diamonds in it. Yeah. Yeah. Dirty and unshaven, and he drove a two-door, large American-made car, maroon-colored interior. And the passenger side window was broken, and there was white tape on the window. Dice was hanging from the rearview mirror. So that's a pretty damn good description, if you ask me. That's a great eyewitness. Right? And originally, she told police that she was abducted. She was walking, and the man pulled up in his car and got out ran up to her and took her by the throat and pulled her into the car. He took her to a secluded area and continued to choke her and beat on her over and over. He would ask her to swallow as he was choking the life out of her. She would go in and out of consciousness. She finally just played dead, and he dumped her out thinking that she was in fact dead. And she laid there not moving a muscle, afraid that he was still watching. After like a solid 30 minutes, she finally got up and found her way to the nearest payphone to call her sister. Yeah, this next part is kind of gross, so I don't know if if I want to say it, but you can cover your ears if you want. Earmuffs. (laughs) Earmuffs, people. Derby. So this sick, demented game that Samuel Little would play with their throats, you know, it seemed to get him off. And rarely did he actually rape his victims because he was actually said to have erectile dysfunction. And he was known as the choke and stroke killer. Okay. So that's kind of disgusting, but he would choke them (laughs) out and masturbate over their bodies. He attempted numerous times to have sex with their dead corpses too, but couldn't get it up. So. My mom's going to love this episode. (laughs) And here's Lori's testimony from that night. She said, quote, He liked to feel me swallow with his thumb on my neck. It became a game. Right before I would go unconscious, as my eyes started to roll back, he would let go and ask me to swallow again. He loved when I swallowed. It excited him. He had a smile on his face the whole time. So he would just, I mean, she would be on the verge of death every time. And and then he let her. Let her live regain consciousness and do it all over again bro dude is a monster who hurt you bro there's yeah i mean there's no fixing somebody like that Mm -mm. just just gotta put him away a month later san diego patrol officers stumbled upon a black thunderbird which fit the earlier description from lori Mm -hmm. they were in this like the same location too as the attempted murder of lori which was an area known for stolen vehicles, sex workers, and drugs. Of course. Of course. As they approached the vehicle, Samuel got out of the car as they were shining their flashlights on the vehicle. And he appeared very nervous. You know, he was staring at the car, staring at them, then back at the car. And as they approached him, they asked him what was he doing. The story that he gave was that he got into a fight with his wife, but they had made up and were making love in the back seat. But the cops could see he had bloody scratch marks on the neck. Mm-hmm. So they took a look inside the vehicle, and in the back seat was an unconscious woman who looked to be beaten and strangled and was naked. The officer thought she was dead at first, but then saw her gasping for air and could see she had fresh choke marks on her throat. So if you're the officer, clearly you, you put two and two together right there, and you know that this guy's lying about it being his wife and that they were back there making love consensual yeah i mean and luckily they got there when they did too because i mean she would have been dead for sure so obviously he was arrested they were told by him that his name was samuel mcdowell which was his alias Mm -hmm. and on the way to the station he runs his mouth trying to talk his way out of it but to no avail really he tells them that 
He paid for sex. She wouldn't do what she agreed to do, and he wanted more. But she started to refuse, and he threatened her, saying, you aren't going anywhere until I get what I want. And then he claims that she attacked him. and he, Okay. Yeah, and he grabbed her neck in self-defense. Multiple times, he would ask the police officers, he was like, how's the bitch? Is she going to make it? Yeah. I'm sure he was just hoping that she was still alive for his sake. I mean, he, he denied ever raping her, but he did say he'd kick the shit out of her, and he also told the police, I should have killed that whore. Like, man. Bro. Crazy. Rape kits were conducted for both of these cases. They collected the DNA of Samuel as well. He was charged for both of these crimes, attempted murder. Mm -hmm. State's best evidence was the victims themselves. I mean, they didn't really have much else to go by. Those poor girls, though. Yeah. But Samuel ended up only being convicted for lesser crimes due to some complications with the victims at trial. First of all, they're both sex workers. And you remember, this was 1984, and DNA kits really hadn't come as far as they have nowadays or even a few years after that. They weren't really able to say, oh, this was for sure Samuel Little. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, he can just say it wasn't him. The thing about these being sex workers is that he can say, yeah, we had consensual sex that day. And then someone else probably came along and beat them and strangled them. Oh, you know, because there's no murder weapon, really. He also argued that his only crime was hitting one of the women because of the payment dispute. And he provided an alibi witness, which I thought was weird. She looked like a respectful-looking woman. She was carrying a Bible with her. Oh, my gosh. They claimed that they were both out of town during the first attack because he can't really have an alibi for that second one. Yeah, they were there. Yeah. So what seemed like an easy victory for the prosecuting attorneys turned out otherwise. And then one of the, I think it was Lori, she, she was on stand and she was drunk. So that didn't help either. Oh, poor girl. What all she did all she could just to yeah. face him. Well, that's what he does. He attacks those that are addicts and and weak and all that. So they allowed him to plead guilty to two counts of assault with great bodily injury and one count of false imprisonment. So he did a little over two years. And then in nineteen eighty seven he was released and he moved to Los Angeles. So once again. Two and a half years for attempted murder twice. I can't. Like, they should just have somebody tell him at all times because they know it's going to happen again. Right. Just lock him up, throw away the key, please. And guess what? He does it again. <laughs> he does it again. No, he was arrested. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, he does, but this time he gets arrested for good, so... The one I'm about to tell you. So 2012, he's at a homeless shelter in Louisville, Kentucky, and he was... Investigators had been searching for him hard, too, and remember, he had nothing to his name, no credit card, no registered vehicle, but they found him when he used a Walmart debit card. Hmm. So after this, authorities used DNA testing to establish that he was involved in the murders of Carol Elford who was killed in 1987, Guadalupe Apodaca, killed in September 1987, and Audrey Everett, killed in August 1989. All three of these women were killed and later found on the streets of L.A., all strangled to death. So he was charged on January 7, 2013, and he was tried for the murders The prosecution presented the DNA evidence as well as testimonies from witnesses who also said they were attacked by Little at different times throughout his career of criminal activity. So there's a, I'm sure there's tons of of victims that that survived. Because 30 years? Yeah. Who knows where these bodies were left? Yeah. And they took forever (sighs) to find some of these bodies. 
He was found guilty on September 25th, 2014, and was sentenced to three consecutive life without parole sentences. Little was persistent, though, in saying that he was innocent of these crimes after his conviction. Dude. Like, come on. You got a track record here. <laughs> yeah. So we've seen in previous cases that we've done, DNA testing has worked wonders in solving cases because, I mean, who knows how much sooner they could have caught this guy if, they had, if that had played a factor. I mean, in the 70s and 80s, it could have stopped so many killings. In 2018, a journalist, Jillian Lauren, started writing to Little. And Little seemed fond of her, but at the beginning he insisted that he was innocent. And Jillian had spoken with detectives and they had informed her that, yeah, they suspect Little was involved in a lot more than what they know of. So she felt the urge to help. And she told Little that, he was the most important person in her life at the time. And oh, she, wow. She basically made a deal with the devil. She said if, if he confessed to her, she would make sure that he wouldn't die alone. I mean, he was 78 at the time and suffering from health issues. He had heart disease, diabetes, and was in a wheelchair. They actually, like, kind of became friends. Like, she knew everything about his life, and she was still like... I'll bring you brownies next <laughs> visit. Yeah, I know. <laughs> And, you know, he wasn't that big, intimidating man that he once was. He was old, weak man at this point. And I think they were, they were working against the clock to get him to confess. No one wanted his secrets to go to the grave with him. So many stones needed to be turned over. And she actually met him in person. But the first meeting didn't really go as planned. She didn't really get anything out of him. But the next day, she was determined to give him another chance and he began talking about a woman who she figured was one of the victims. And he said, okay, Missy, you got me. What do you want to know about the first one? First victim? Yeah. And after that, the floodgates really just opened up. Oh, my God. And that day, he told Jillian about 13 women that he killed. Wow. And then the next weekend, he told her about 25 more. Jesus. Yeah, I think I think he just found Jillian very attractive. I don't know. He's probably like just looking at her neck the whole time. <laughs> and this probably got him talking a lot easier than he would with any investigators trying to interview him in the past. So Jillian, if you didn't know, she has a show called Confronting a Serial Killer, and it's on Stars. So I watched that like three times, but. <laughs> and I'm the one that's obsessed with right? true crime. Yeah, she she did an episode on Samuel Little. I think it was episode four. She's got five total, I believe. But she called law enforcement to share what she was t what he was telling her, and she reached out to Texas Ranger James Holland. And law enforcement were already in the process of investigating Little. As soon as law enforcement got the DNA hit on Little, they asked the FBI's violent criminal apprehension program to work up a full background on him. The FBI found an alarming pattern and compelling links to many more murders. They had been investigating Little for his involvement in three dozen murders committed in the 1980s. Damn. VICAP reached out to Texas Rangers with one clear connection. They found one case out of Odessa, Texas that sounded a lot like him. I mean, you gotta think stranglings, you know, mm -hmm. not leaving any knife wounds or anything like that and just dumping them on the side of the road. That sounds a lot like him. They could actually even place him passing through that area around the same time. Denise Christie Brothers was the woman murdered in Odessa, Texas in 1994. And Texas Ranger James Holland was the lead investigator on the case, and he traveled to California to interview Little. Holland was known as a serial killer whisperer of sorts. Ooh. So like I'm the dog whisperer, he's the oh, yes. serial killer of whisperer. You are. So it made sense that he would go and be the one to go talk to him. And if you don't know anything about VICAP, here's kind of a little brief description of what they are about. VICAP is unique in the sense that we are looking for those different cases 
that tend to lend themselves to a serial nature. These could include cases where offenders leave behind unique signatures. Was the victim posed, for example? Were items taken from the scene? When they come across or they have one of these types of cases, they place it in VICAP. It opens up the, the opportunity for them to use our resources, the, the VICAP crime analysts, so that we can do the analytical work for them, provide the agency with investigative leads so they can hopefully bring their case to resolution. I think the biggest advantage to VICAP program is the intelligence and the sharing of the information. Thomas Kelly, chief of the Apache Junction Police Department in Arizona, has been using and promoting the database for years. He said the ability to cross-match your own unique case against thousands of others is an invaluable tool. The VICAP program is the one that you want to at least get the information out because now you have access to X number of thousands of other crimes or connections and possible leads that you might be able to put that case into the system and get a hit or a ping that your case might be connected to a case in Illinois or New York or wherever. There's constant connections being made on a daily basis. Every time a new case comes in, there's another potential that could be connected somewhere. That's so cool. That's pretty cool. So That's so cool. Just this giant database that they used. Use keywords or something and it pop, pop, pop. <laughs> put all the cases in there and they share all the information with city officials across the state, all across the U.S. I mean, it's impressive. Very cool. Well, for the longest time, Little just refused to talk or cooperate. Co I feel like I can't say that word. <laughs> cooperate. There you go. With detectives, sheriffs, and other members of law enforcement. But he was looking to move prisons. In exchange for a move, Little was willing to talk. And after Holland interviewed Little, he was indicted for the Odessa homicide and extradited to Texas a few months later, as promised. He pled guilty to this one. He remained in the custody of Odessa, but was housed in Wise County for a while to be closer to Ranger Holland, who was conducting daily interviews at this point to create the most accurate accounting possible of Little's crimes. Little sat down with Jillian and Holland, basically, and Jillian gained his trust over time after many long conversations with him. He called her precious uh. and told her that he just hoped she wouldn't change like so many women do. He told her that he would tell her all the things she wanted to know. And I'm sure you added a little wink at the end. Yeah. Gross. As a predator, he said... They were just like a herd of cattle when asked about how he knew which woman to go after. He said they're just sheeps to be slaughtered and make lamb chops out of. Like a lion, he wanted to get his ass on that zebra. What? Yeah. And when these girls, you know, who were often sex workers, would tease him, showing him a little ass or that sort of thing, his desire became drive. He wanted them or else. He said he believes he owns the souls of every one of his victims, that they belong to him. Mm. And he would sometimes tell them that as he was strangling them. He'd tell them that he loved them and that they were his forever. And sometimes he would make them repeat it back to him. How? You're strangling them. That's so creepy. What are you doing? That's so creepy. Can you imagine that be like the last thing you hear? Before you die. <laughs> I love you. Yeah, that's disturbing. And he chose women that weren't important. You know, like school teachers and lawyers and people important in the community were, were not who he was after because people would want to know what happened to them. They'd look for him for yeah, sure. People would miss them. He targeted women that wouldn't be missed, like prostitutes and drug addicts and women of the night, as he puts them. Mm -hmm. And it sounds sad to say because, I mean, everybody has someone that cares about them, but I think that definitely was one of the reasons that he went all those years without getting caught. He would dump them after strangling them, and it would look like an overdose most of the time because there was nothing that made it look like a homicide, really. He would suffocate them or strangle them to death and then drive a ways to, to a secluded spot to dump the bodies. 
and the bodies sometimes went unidentified because these people have left their families, you know, they've, mm-hmm. they're just out on the streets, sometimes homeless, and their deaths weren't even investigated half the time. Plus, a lot of the bodies wouldn't be found for weeks or months at a time. Oh, yeah, and the elements getting to Yeah, them. decomposed. And then there wasn't no stab marks, no bullet wounds to classify them as homicides. And then, like I said, DNA evidence was often not available or could not provide a clear link back to Little. All they had is the connection between the different girls and how they were died. Yep. Samuel Little's first alleged victim was Mary Jo Brosley. And that began kind of the pattern that Little would follow throughout his life, basically preying on those much weaker and much more vulnerable than him. And she struggled all her life. She was, her life was far from easy. She kept finding herself falling into the arms of these bad boys, as Megan would say. Bad boys. Yeah. Just abusive, uncaring guys that treated her like shit. And she had many physical battles, too. Her boyfriend had injured her so badly that she had to have hip surgery that left her walking with a limp. Ugh. And there was also a self-inflicted injury in which she nearly cut her finger off while chopping vegetables. And she refused to have it treated and let the severed part just kind of dangle until it eventually fell off. Oh, my God. Yeah. At least cut it the rest of the way off or something. She was broken and bruised. She was an alcoholic that was unable to care for her own children. She was severely anorexic, standing five foot four and barely weighing 80 pounds. Oh, my God. Yeah. So she skipped town on her family and her seven-year-old son, who was who was already in foster care. And Mary's sister, Claire, had the last reported sighting of her. She was one of those people that, that actually did care about Mary. On June 12, 1970, she was picked up off the side of the road by police. She said that two men had pushed her out of a moving vehicle and that she had hurt her shoulder. And it's unclear where she slept that night, but her family was told that Mary was going to take a bus back to Boston where they were living, but she never came to Boston. Instead, she went from Massachusetts to Florida, and Claire told authorities that Mary would get around by hitchhiking basically from anyone that would give her a ride or provide her alcohol. Well, here comes Samuel Little. He met her in a bar, and she took a ride with him in his car, and he ended up strangling her to death. And her body was found in a shallow grave, but her remains were not identified until 2017. Wow. Yeah, a father and a son were out hunting in the Florida Everglades about seven months after her death when the sun spotted a leg sticking out from the ground and they reported it to authorities. Luckily, there was a body attached to it, thankfully, but... I mean, like, no alligators in it? Yeah, right. Roughly six inches of dirt covered Mary in this shallow grave. The body was badly decomposed and there was no identification. And this was ruled a homicide and sexual assault was suspected because it appeared that she had been dressed in her clothing after she was already dead. This was based off the fact that both legs were through one leg hole of the victim's panties. Since they couldn't identify the victim, they gave her a new name that no one wants but was seen often throughout Little's killing spree, Jane Doe. Her body remained unidentified for 47 years, And sadly, her family would hear what they had all feared all along, that she didn't just disappear. At least they know now. Yeah. In 2018, this was one of the many murders that Little confessed to. He drew all of his victims by memory. His drawings were really good, too, in my opinion, except for the part about the eyes. He would show, like, their struggle... And like Little, Dennis Rader, the BTK killer, also drew pictures of his victims. He strangled 10 people in Kansas between 1970 and 1990s, and he taunted police by sending letters to newspapers detailing his murders. And you could really say that Little had a photographic memory 
or at least he spent so much time in prison that he was able to remember so many details about his victims. He knew what she was wearing. He remembered complications regarding burying her body and that she had problems with alcohol. But, I mean, I would assume that he probably remembered his first kill the most, right? Yeah, I would think think so. The one that started it all. Yeah. And Little killed approximately two dozen women between years 1970 and 1982. Now, remember, he was charged with the murder of Melinda LaPree and Patricia Mount, but was not convicted due to the untrustworthy testimonies, Mm -hmm. no physical evidence. In 1987, when he got out of prison for the strangling of the two women, he killed another 10 women before he started traveling the country again. Then over the next 10 years, he would commit murders in Florida, Georgia, Arkansas, Louisiana, Nevada, Ohio, and Arizona. And he made it through Arkansas in our neck of the woods at some point in the 1990s. He thinks it was between 92 and 94. So he may have had photographic memory, but his, his recollection of dates and directions weren't the best. Little said that he encountered a black female in a transient area of Little Rock, Arkansas. He remembered that it was cold and possibly snowing when they met. He described the woman as being 24 years old, somewhere between 5'5 and 5'7 and approximately 200 pounds. Hmm. He stayed with her off and on for about three days. They shoplifted together and they had her sell the items. He would do this everywhere he went, though. Hmm. And he was arrested for shoplifting in a North Little Rock Kroger grocery store. And records do show that to be accurate, but he was released maybe three hours later because the property owner didn't want the vehicle sitting in the parking lot. Oh, my gosh. And at the time, it was a 1978 yellow Cadillac Eldorado, and the woman was still sleeping inside. So the grocery store owner dropped the charges and Little returned to the vehicle. The woman was still inside, so he drove her back to her home. Then the next day, he picked her up again and drove her to the outskirts of Little Rock. To me, it sounds like he's talking about Benton, Arkansas, although he gets it confused with Bentonville. Yeah, those are two completely different cities. Because Bentonville's like three hours away from Little Rock. Right, and And Benton's really like... Yeah, he said like a like, ten minute drive on the interstate. Yeah, he said ten minutes outside of Little Rock, so it just sounds like Benton. Benton. He drove down a dirt road and manually strangled the woman to death. He stated he placed the woman's body on a pile of branches and old corn stalks in or near a cornfield. He believes the woman's name may have been Ruth and that her mother lived in North Little Rock. And I'll play a little clip. And she she was like a honey color skin. And she had, uh, like, her hair was not really long. It was, How tall do you think she was? She was about five, seven. How much do you think she weighed? She weighed about close to, to 200, about 170. 180. Pretty pretty big girl. Yeah. Right. Now, where did you meet her at? Okay, down in the crack house. I was, they heard about six other girls were sitting on the porch. Do some cracking there. I stopped to go there. I seen the girls. That's why I stopped. We stayed together two days or more. I think about three days. We was going shoplifting. We went to Sears. We went to uh, Culver's, and that's where I got busted. Mm-hmm. They took me to jail, and she went and stayed in the car. And the manager of Kroger's, got, I guess he got tired of her laying on his property in, in that car. He called the, pol- the station where I was at in North uh, North Arkansas to drop the charges. Mm-hmm. So he can come down and get this gal and car out of him. They cut me loose. So we was headed toward with that place where Walmart's uh, an original stove bent. I whipped off the road and back into that little woods. It was a cornfield back there. I pulled through it and on the other side was the cornfield 
with a trash pile. I parked the car facing out where I could see anybody coming in. So I, I pulled her out of the car. She's too big for me to carry, carry her. So I just pulled her out of the car and laid her on that trash that was lit there. So was it like a cornstalk pile or was it? Yeah, a bunch of cornstalks. What could you see from there? Uh, I could see the highway. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the woods is that way. But it's right outside of Little Rock. I, I was about 10 miles from it. From North Little Rock, you think 10 miles? Yeah, it was about 10 miles. Okay. So. Dang. Yeah. yeah, that's been. Yeah, but it makes me question if there are two different victims in Arkansas because his mention of Benton and Bentonville. And he said where the original Walmart was located. That's Bentonville, right? Yes, that's Bentonville. But I mean, if he's not from here, those are I mean, Benton, Bentonville. Yeah. That could that's an easy mistake. Plus, if he was already with her for a couple of days and's grown tired of her, I doubt he's going to drive three hours in a car with her to go to a cornfield. Oh right, no, I know that, but I just wonder if you know he's seventy eight years old. He might be thinking of two different crimes. You know, That's maybe true. he killed somebody in Benton and he killed a different person in Bentonville. I guess it might just depend maybe like the place he went to after being in Arkansas. If he was going up that direction from Benton towards Bentonville. Maybe. maybe yeah. That would make sense. But otherwise, maybe he's just, he's not a local. Right. He doesn't know. Do you know where all he was shopping? Like, did you recognize? Sears? Do you know where Sears is at in North Little Rock? I do. Yeah. It used to be right attached to McCain Mall. Okay. Right off McCain Boulevard and JFK. Hmm. Right off the interstate. Uh, I don't I don't know what it is anymore because I think all the Sears are closed now. I think they I think went through so. bankruptcy or something like that. And then a North Little Rock Kroger, which, I mean, these could have moved any time in the last, like, 30 years. But there's... There's one uh, in Lakewood Village. It's a small one. And then there's the big one off 107, kind of going towards Mom and Dad's house and Scotty and all that. Okay. Huh. And Levy. Levy's technically North Little Rock-ish. That's another little small section that's kind of a more poor area as well. It oh. is nowadays, at least. Okay. Well, so we know Samuel Little, he really enjoyed Jillian's company, but James Holland... The Texas Ranger really grew on him, too. And they bonded over spending time in Texas, sodas they liked, nicknames that their parents had given them. I think Holland was just trying to, you buddy know. Up buddy up with him. Yeah. And Holland listened as, as Little vented about local police, and he was patient as Little started to tell the truth about certain details surrounding one of his alleged murders. And Little had told Holland that he stopped counting the number of murders at 84. Jeez. Yeah. There are plenty of serial killers who have claimed to have murdered, like you said, but that didn't really do all the murders. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like they had 84 closed cases right then and there. Holland still had to work diligently to share all the information he retrieved with the VICAP. Investigators would have a lot of work cut out for them. I mean, we were talking about... 50 years ago for some of these murders. That's wild. Yeah. A big reason why some of the cases started to close, though, were those sketches that, that Little drew for Holland. Over 20 sketches in total. And as Little confessed, sheriffs all over the country were making announcements that Little was involved in cases that had, hadn't been solved for in 20-plus years. There were unidentified victims all over the place, and this was bringing closure to investigations and closure to victims' families that were left with so many questions all these years. Little continued to confess to murders across the country until right before his death in December 2020. Oh, that was recent. Yeah. A month before he died, he had confessed to the killing of two women in Florida, when this story was matched up with details from various disappearances in the state, investigators realized that they had wrongfully convicted another man of the same crime. Oh, dang. Little was 80 years old when he died. Had Little died one day later, he would have died exactly 50 years after his first, first murder. Still to this day, the FBI are working to connect Samuel Little's confessions to various killings throughout the United States. 
the biggest lesson in this case is the power of information sharing. Yes. These connections all started in their database of violent crime. Majority of these cases would still be cold today, and a lot of these victims would be unidentified today if it weren't for Little finally confessing. And the VICAP program was a big help to spreading information across the country to different local police. Little was killing during a time when a lot of other serial killers were killing and getting headline news, and he was flying under the radar and being able to connect the dots between the murders they knew about and other murders that had similar characteristics helped out a ton. Obviously, there were red flags thrown whenever they came across a victim that was strangled to death. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, was this another Samuel Little victim? But all in all, I believe working with what they were given, local law enforcement did a great job to apprehend Little so many times. It was just the justice system that failed over and over again. Yeah, He should have, I mean, he should have been locked up in the 70s and 80s and stayed locked up. But instead, he was out killing across the U.S. till 2005. That is crazy. Crazy. I mean, they kept every side I looked up, they were like, this is the most prolific serial killer of all time. And I'm like, what? How have I never heard of this? Yeah. Insane. Because it probably would be more like in your face if he used like some weird weapon or left a note or, you know, something like that that would gain more attention. But this is like you said, this is some transient man that just Mm -hmm. drives to a new city and he's like, oh, look, a victim does his thing, dumps him, goes about his business like no big deal. And like you said, they think most of the victims probably just OD'd in a ditch or something like that. Crazy. That is wild. Oh, my gosh. And he's one of the few black serial killers out there. I don't know there's very many of those. I saw another one in California during the same time. Lonnie David Franklin Jr. He was the grim sleeper. Wow. You got to live up to that name. Yeah. Grim sleeper. At least he got a cool name out of it. It was responsible for at least 10 murders and one attempted murder in Los Angeles from 1984 to 2007. So it was like... Damn, the same. Right during that same time, yeah. No wonder. Mm Mm-hmm. Died in 2020. Oh, I see a trend popping (laughs) up. This is great. I can't believe that. All across the nation, though, went unnoticed pretty much. Oh, my gosh. Pretty crazy. Oh, I really That's... can't wait until we do, like, video because my mouth was open, like, the whole time. <laughs> yeah. I was telling Megan, this is the first and last serial killer that I'm going to cover. <laughs> okay. That's fine. I'll take it from here, sir. Yeah. It's not a problem. Well, that's it? Yeah. That's it. That wraps up another episode of the Caught Red Podcast. We are very grateful for all you listeners out there, the old and the new ones. If you don't already know, follow us on Instagram. It is Caught Red Podcast, spelled P-A-W-D. You can check out our website for episodes, and eventually I will do a blog post. There's Jesse's eye roll coming up in three, two, one. <laughs> Hurry up. Please leave us a review wherever you listen. That way people can find us and our dogs. I did want to do a quick shout out, though, to our dentist, Ariana. She and her fiance listened. She kind of went all fangirl, and I thought it was awesome. And we do need to hang out and calm down. Everything will be fine. Your wedding will be fine. <laughs> she gets married this weekend, and she was kind of spazzing out. But Oh, congrats. Yes. And I was just thinking, like, I'm glad we got married the way we did. We had like barely 50 people in my parents' backyard and it was on a Monday night and it was, if you could make it, awesome. If you couldn't, like, we that's cool. We understand. It's not a big deal. But I think it was perfect. It was. It was perfect. And Derby was right there. That's right. She was my maid of honor. She followed dad and I down the aisle. She sat at my feet during the whole ceremony and then she, she led us up the aisle back to the house. And it rained that day, so that was good luck, right? Yeah, yeah. 
cleared up just in time for us to put everything back out and get ready and people started showing up. So yeah, it was perfect. I wouldn't change a thing. I'll keep him around. Yeah. We'll be back next week with another case and a bonus episode. As always, stay local, shop local, murder local.